You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Skylights Book Podcast. I'm Tyler, a bookseller at Skylight Books on 1818 Vermont Avenue. Uh, thank you all for joining us here today uh, for our new episode. I want to quickly introduce our guest, Alexandra Lang. Uh, she's a design critic and author. Her work has appeared in Bloomberg, City Lab, Curbed, DZine, and Design Observer, as well as in The New Yorker and The New York Times. Her previous book, published in 2018, was The Design of Childhood, How the Material World Shapes Independent Kids. And she's here today to discuss her new book, uh, Meet Me by the Fountain, uh, which is uh, all about malls, the history of malls, uh, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. So I wanted to prompt Alexandra to to read a little bit from her book to get us started today. Sure, thanks. Um, I'm going to read right from the beginning of the book as a kind of mood setting piece. Um, so I'll just go ahead and do that. Uh, why we go to the mall? From the Turnpike, the American Dream was a great gray blob. An earlier version of this mall, then named Meadowland Xanadu, had worn its tacky heart on its sleeve, its vast expanse a riot of blocks and stripes of color, the patterns dramatizing the precipitous angle of the indoor ski slope as it rose from the parking lot. But now the building reposed glumly on the roadside horizon, less distinct than the green sweep of the Meadowlands or the bowl of MetLife Stadium, home of the New York Giants. Only in one spot, the outward curve of the Nickelodeon roller coaster, did American Dream's facade break its darkness, as if this ride alone could not be contained. Inside, despite my multi-year study of the history of malls, I found myself lost. Atrium seemed to follow atrium, one with a chandelier, one with a vaulted wood ceiling, one with a plastic garden, without any sense of hierarchy or connection back to the outdoors. Long halls papered with photographs suggested that one day glamorous stores might follow, but the stores that were there, Zara, Bath and Body Works, Amazon Four Star, weren't anything I needed to leave New York City to visit. Down in the lower level, near the mini golf and the aquarium, signs of life. The scent of Auntie Anne's, a pastel boba storefront, masked families on their travels to the ski slope, to the indoor beach, to the candy store. After more than a year of quarantine, largely confined to my Brooklyn neighborhood, I found myself touched and thrilled by their linked hands. In May 2021, when it seemed like the summer might bring an end to the COVID pandemic, seeing parents and children out and about having fun together brought me a spike of joy. I wanted to see people, I wanted to watch people, I wanted to be among people. We were all seeking that at the mall. So I'm gonna stop there. I think that that's work? perfect. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a perfect place to start. Um, and so to kind of follow up on that, and I think, you know, you, you paint such a nice picture of that mall, uh, even though it is kind of uh, maybe too modern. It's not your favorite mall, I'll say. Um, yes, not my favorite mall. <laughs> not your favorite mall, but there is something like uh, sense memory triggering about just hearing the word Auntie Anne's, I think. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to kind of start also by by maybe prompting you, you kind of also described this in the book in great detail, but I figured I'd give you a chance to talk about it here is like, what was what was your first mall? And like, what was so special about it? My first mall was Northgate Mall in Durham, North Carolina. That's where I grew up. And Northgate Mall, as I say in the book, was an extremely ordinary mall. Like, the anchor stores were um, a Belks and a Sears. It had a Radio Shack. It had a McDonald's. It had a Carousel. It had a Spencer Gifts. Like very like middle to lower middle class stores. Um, and in the book, I talk about going there to do back to school shopping at the Sears. And I think shopping for kids and teenagers is a really important 
important part of identity formation. And so, you know, yes, it's shopping. Yes, it's commercialism. But you're also trying to, like, figure out who you are through what you are choosing to go back to school in. And in an important moment um, for me was in that Sears where I realized that all of the pink puffy coats in the girls department really did not suit me at all. And I realized I could just go over to the boys department where they had lovely gray chore coats with a flannel lining, which I bring up because those are back in style now. And I picked that and I wore that to school and it was like, oh, okay, I'm making a choice here in this store at the mall to be this sort of person rather than that sort of person. Yeah. And that's kind of what the mall offers you, right? Is that like, it gives you so many choices and options. Obviously that's sort of the beauty of it. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You, you said something there that, and I think it's why I was drawn to your book in such a way is, as I love like these stories, the behind the scenes stories and things you interact with so often. So like you use the phrase anchor store. Like, can you explain just like the concept of anchor store and how like malls have these different shapes? Some of them are X's, some are T's. And it's things that like, I guess I've always known, but never had got seen put into words before. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and I think even sometimes these words we hear together, like anchor store, like you've heard that before, but you don't think about what it really means. And it actually has an important business meaning. Um, in the early development of the mall, basically developers would approach department stores that were located downtown in whatever city the mall was going to be in a suburb of and get them to sign on to be the first businesses in the mall, the anchor businesses. Um, and they would raise the rest of the money to develop the mall off the um, allure of getting a Hudson's or a Belk's or a Neiman Marcus or whatever at the mall. So they're literally anchoring the business deal. And then they're also physically anchoring the mall because the simplest malls had two department stores, one at each end. Um, and so they're kind of in an eye shape with just like a run of stores between the two department stores. Then you go slightly larger and you can get an L shape where, you know, there's an, three stores, one at each of the um, intersection points or a T shape where there's one off to the side. Um, then sometimes people want to expand the mall and they'll end up in a V shape or a W shape. Like in each of these is like new large store and then a run of facing shops going off of it. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I think a lot of people say they're confused by malls is that they tend to be going to malls um, in like the 90s and 2000s. And a lot of those malls have completely lost that original shape and that original simplicity because they've been added onto so much over the years. Yeah, it becomes a little bit like a like a maze and sometimes, and if, and if you don't have the knowledge, I guess in my mind, like as a kid also when you're going, I'm like, well, there's the Nordstrom and then there's this in, and I'm, yeah. you just don't know, you're like all turned around in that way because you don't think of them as like a, a North Star of the mall. You'd be like, I'll be back to you. More appropriately, you think of the fountain as like a place where you're like, okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. Um, and we'll meet back there. Um, I was going to say, it's so funny. Like when I was, I've been telling people that I've been reading this book and uh, everyone's been telling me, and I'm sure you, you mentioned this in the book, everyone's been telling you about your mall, their mall experiences. And I had a friend who told me a very funny one. And I, I just I quickly share is like, cause that's the thing when you say picking your identity as a teen, like a lot of teenagers like still go to the mall with their families, but they know their friends are there and they still still want to look cool. So he would like get to walk like four or five feet ahead of his family to like be <laughs> look like he was on his own. But then his younger sister didn't understand why he was walking so far ahead. And so she would like call out to him and be like, hey, come back. That's just further embarrassing him in front of any any potential friends or, or uh, <laughs> girls who, who might be looking at him. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's just such a like woven into the fabric of, of being a teenager, uh, certainly. Um, but so so going way, way back, because I love how well researched this book was, I it, like I mean, you go all the way back to France and like the the, the very <laughs> beginnings of, of department stores, which I thought was so fascinating. But specifically, it's is Victor Gruen. Yeah, Victor Gruen. Victor, Victor Gruen is sort of like the I guess the I would call him the grandfather of malls. Yeah, father or grandfather malls. I'd say he's the first great mall innovator. 
Um, and there were other people that were working at the same time as he was. But uh, one of the reasons we know his name and he was so successful is that he was a showman. You know, like now we kind of expect our business leaders to be charismatic and really know how to sell things. And Victor Gruen was very much in that mode. Like he was an architect, but he ended up being more like, um, you know, a public figure and a, and a public salesman for the idea of the mall. But um, as an architect, just to give you like a little biography, um, Gruen was a Viennese emigre. He fled the Nazis and came to the U.S., to New York City specifically in 1938. Um, and he was already trained as a modern architect. So some of his first architectural projects in the US were very beautiful little boutiques in New York City. Um, if you look at pictures of them, it's kind of like they're these beautiful jewel boxes for you know leather goods, jewelry, candy, and other things. So he had a lot of um, design sensibility, and he was already working in the commercial sector. And then he hooked up with um, the people behind uh, so a minor department store chain known as Grayson's, who gave him a lot more runway and started flying him around the country to pick new sites for department stores and design those. Um, so he he learned a lot about, you know, retailing in America, suburbs in America, like, you know, the development of markets. Uh, and after the war, he realized that a lot of the downtown merchants that he was looking at, their stores were starting not to fail, but to, you know, basically have less customers because the U.S. was building all of these suburbs and people did not want to drive all the way back into town to shop. So how could he get these department store owners who, you know, had these gorgeous stores and looked at the suburbs as kind of like ugly and desolate um, to move out there because he knew it would be better for their business for them to be closer to the new homeowners. So his solution was the shopping mall because the shopping mall was supposed to be more like a town square or a European street. And it also gave those department store owners more control over the surroundings for their stores. Like they, they wanted their stores still to be these jewels, but now they could say, okay, when you exit our store, we're gonna exit onto this concourse and it's gonna have beautiful landscaping. It's gonna have sculpture, it's gonna have a fountain. And that made them feel more secure in moving out to the suburbs. Yeah, I, th I thought that was so interesting. You draw this great parallel, almost like uh, <laughs> the history of the mall and sort of the history of America being sort of tied, I mean, parallel to each other. So um, in terms of the way that suburbs are built and and I don't think um, this was ever Victor Gruen's intention, but it's so interesting that the mall is this thing that sort of essentially the 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 hole that he's filling is like white flight is leading to these people having nowhere to go and so yeah. with that being the need he fills it with this and um and obviously then there are a lot of other things that that you know societally that they're you know the mall has a very particular type of customer and i don't think that was ever his intention but that seems to be like that's what the mall does for its kind of first two decades is it just sort of weeds out a certain type of customer and it, it targets a very specific type of customer, one that you talk about a lot. Yeah, no, that was certainly one of the interesting things to discover as I did my research. Number one, the idea that was that you, like we can't talk about post-war development without talking about the mall, but most urban histories really focus on roads and housing and not on the mall as this third space. So I was like, first of all, the mall is actually super important. You know, it's not a side note. I think that the mall made the suburbs bearable for a lot of people. And so it has a real like psychological and social component. But then on the other hand, yes, the suburbs, you know, were, uh, essentially financed by low interest mortgages available to U.S. servicemen, but only white U.S. servicemen. So the people moving into those houses were um, young white families. And so the people going to the malls were white women and children. Um, and I haven't found any evidence of kind of, you know, colored drinking fountains or things like that at malls, but where they were placed, the neighborhoods they were adjacent to, and then also the lack of public transportation to many of the malls made them basically white spaces. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and that was the other thing that I even found interesting as well, where you were saying, so the developers would, you know, eventually were sort of encouraged to buy, you know, way more acreage than they would need so that then they could either, I mean, and obviously they'd sort of had these big grand, grand designs to, you know, build it out with all everything you'd ever want around a mall as well. But usually they just got sold off to developers to build more single family homes that only seemed to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, I mean, Gruen thought that he could build new cities with malls as the center, and he has a lot of plans for that in some of his books and, you know, articles and writings, but it was just financially easier for people to keep doing the same thing that they were doing um, and cheaper to build single family homes than, you know, high rises or office buildings or medical complexes. So his original ideas really um, kind of fell by the wayside. And at a certain point in the 1970s, he actually started you know, talking about how upset he was and kind of disavowing his authorship of the mall. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really interesting. Um, so so then moving into the 70s, uh, you, you talk a lot about um, the Nasher family. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was their mall in Dallas? I'm, I'm the name is the yeah, uh, the it's North Park in Dallas, North, yeah. which mm -hmm. is yes, with, it was developed by the Nasher family in the mid 1960s and is still family owned. So yeah, I spend a lot of time on it, partially because it's a very beautiful example of architecture, <laughs> and partially because it's one of the few malls that opened in 1965 where you can actually still see what it looked like in 1965. Mm. You know, malls like the things that they sell are, you know, kind of built to be transformed, built for, you know, endless upgrading. So to go to a mall that has, still has the same concrete floors and the same brick walls as in 1965 is actually really fascinating. And, and just the scale and materials of it are very beautiful, but also like have a period feeling that you can't get other places. Absolutely. And, and I, you talk about it in depth about it as well, that like I, one of the big sort of innovations of that mall was sort of, again, the family involvement and the upkeep and the sort of set design standard that sort of carries throughout and how they they just keep a very close and sort of watchful eye over every little detail of it, which and, and again, the art collection and all these sort of things that now seem very commonplace. Yeah, so the, the Nasher family um, are also the founders of the Nasher Sculpture Center, which is like an amazing um, sculpture museum in downtown Dallas. So they own a lot of sculpture and they're constantly rotating and showing like really excellent modern and contemporary sculpture in the mall. So it's like a free museum. But yeah, no, they were also very generous with their time. So they allowed me to get some insight into the kind of design standards that you can have if you run a mall. You know, one thing, like they never have music or other interior music. They don't allow little sandwich boards or things outside stores. And so once you've been to North Park and thought, you know, like, you know, why is this so nice? Why does it seem so pristine? Then you go to other malls and you're like, oh, they allow sandwich boards. Like there is like music overhead and then you go into a store and there's loud music. And, you know, there are all these things that, um, you know, mall owners can use to keep their mall looking a certain way. But, you know, not every mall cares about that. Are they, they also don't have like the kiosk no, they don't well. have yeah. kiosks. Yeah. No kiosks. I mean, which kiosks I feel like, can, yeah. yeah, kiosks can be really important. I got my ears pierced at a piercing Kajota, <laughs> which was a kiosk. Um, and there are often ways for you know small business owners, new business owners, to you know get a foothold in the mall. So I don't hate kiosks. North Park's also um, scale wise, like the distance of the the concourse from side to side is smaller than a lot of places. And I think mm. the kiosks work best when you have a really wide concourse. So there's plenty of room to have like a whole walking aisle on either side of the kiosk. I think you can visualize that. Yeah, yeah. And and no no disrespect to kiosks. I've had my glasses cleaned like they've <laughs> never been at a at mall kiosks. But also you do get a lot of the like you, you get sort of solicited a lot. And that I think is something that maybe I could see how the Nasher family would not have wanted that yeah, for people. I, yeah, I don't think they really want airbrushed t-shirts sold in their mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and, and it was another one of the things that really like struck me about your book or really like drew me to your book initially was uh, in 2020 from like June to November, I worked at uh, a coffee shop in a mall 
and, and actually it's something I think you described later as a lifestyle center. And I'm sure we'll talk about those more later, but it was, it was a Rick Caruso run oh. <laughs> uh, Pacific Palisades, like malls. And I'll never forget it. We, we were like, a, it's a very small coffee shop chain here in LA that's like known for like having neon and, you know, kind of like big flashy stickers and sayings and things. And one day we just had, I guess there was a tiny little sticker in the bottom of our glass front window and a, a guy in a very expensive suit comes over and goes, you got to take that out right now. That can't be there doesn't match the design also they really fought us on because it was the middle of the pandemic and people were like who should why you know we were we had shortened our hours from like eight to 12 or something kind of prime coffee drinking hours we had felt and they're mm-hmm. like your contract says you have to be here till 7 p.m and if you don't we'll bounce you and it was, so i mean you know they they really like certain people in, in these mall design like there's a real iron fist quality to the design standards as well which i think is so interesting yeah uh, yeah no um that makes a lot of sense especially what you know we have learned from the records so my oral campaign yes just about like who he wants to attract to his campaign and who he wants to have at his malls and that does not really include everybody i i'll i'll say my first day working there after a few months off i just remembered this uh i because of the pandemic we they closed all the stores and then i got moved to this one um it was right in the middle of the George Floyd riots. And uh, I drove to work and which was again in the Pacific Palisades, which is a beautiful suburb and very expensive suburb of Los Angeles. And there were National Guardsmen guarding the mall. I think Rick Caruso might have pulled some strings on that one. Yeah. So yeah. it's a pretty it's a pretty wild situation there. But uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> we'll we'll bounce away from that for now. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the other really interesting things, and, and kind of incorporated in this as well, uh, because the Pacific Palace is what he bought was a place that sort of existed as a main street. He bought it and then imposed his design on it and everything. So, so something that seems to happen in the second wave of malls that you talk about that I found really interesting was that it became downtown revitalization. That people, all these people who had noticed that the malls had pulled people from downtown, had kind of hurt downtown, decided, well, maybe we can take a, a, a bunch of rundown buildings or a harbor front and we can put in some local shops and businesses. And then that became uh, a whole trend in malls for a really long time. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how cyclical all of these things, like there is a fashion cycle to retail and retailing ideas too, which, you know, again, seems obvious, but maybe not until you point it out. But yeah, in the 1970s, all those downtowns where the department stores used to rule the roost now had too few people, you know, it was just office workers kind of scuttling in, scuttling out and not feeling really safe or interested in going out on the street and spending money. Um, so the main innovator in that sector is an, uh, another developer named James Rouse, um, who was mostly based out of Baltimore. And he teamed up with the designers, um, Ben and Jane Thompson, to create this concept called the Festival Marketplace. Um, and the most famous one of those is Faneuil Hall in Boston, which you know maybe everyone's been to on some sort of heritage tour. Um, but that was a bunch of old... Um, brick market and warehouse buildings near the waterfront in Boston, and they made a pedestrian street uh, in between them, and they carefully curated the businesses uh, within them to be local businesses, food businesses, crafts, and if you look at period photos of it, there are banners flying. I used to go there as a kid because we lived in Boston when I was really little, um, and there were always jugglers or other things on the street, so it, it really felt like a fair all the time, and it was a destination from you know the suburbs of, of Boston also when you had visitors. Um, and that became a template for a lot of downtowns. Rouse and the Thompsons also did South Street Seaport and Harbor Place in Baltimore. Um, and then you can just see a million other versions of this kind of taking existing historic architecture, pedestrianizing the street in between and giving it a label. Um, and in fact, underneath, there's also a different business proposition where, you know, one entity owns it um, and probably has their own maintenance staff and their own security. And that's where you get into these, uh, you know, ambiguous situations where it seems like you're on a public street, but you're, uh, uh, you're actually in like a privately run part of the city. 
Right. Which you definitely, you talk about like, yeah, you sort of left the jurisdiction. You, you've entered a new jurisdiction basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought in, in, so when reading this and, and as you kind of set this up, the scene really nicely of like what this is and what it's doing. And, and I couldn't help but think like, well, what does this do to the people who are living in this part of town who were possibly, you know, uh, patronizing businesses that were previously there. And then you kind of pay this off beautifully by, by explaining that the very first use of the word gentrification in, was in New Yorker magazine was sort of like, it was like in regards to retail, um, which I thought was so interesting that it's like, yeah, it kind of was almost a forerunner. To, it, it was like, this all sounds so familiar, basically. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I mean, one of the things that's fun as a writer and, and something that I hope my book does it's just kind of tied together all of these pieces of information that like we many people like have in their heads, but you don't see how they're connected. And, you know, as an architecture critic, to me, they're always, you know, connected in a space or connected by a place. And I think it's, it's really clear with this idea of gentrification. It's like, what is the cost of entry? Like, what's the cheapest thing that you can buy in this shopping world? And if it's a cup of coffee, for you know, one to two dollars, that's one thing. But if it's a fancy cup of coffee that starts at five dollars, like that is a completely other thing. Um, and you know, and another just community thing that I talk about um, in a different part of the book uh, is communities of mall walkers in suburbs. And for them, like a cheap cup of coffee at the end of their morning routine is really important, and that's why mall walking is really. Um, an activity and an exercise for older people that cuts across class lines. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I, it was just very interesting to see where like, right. Exactly. The point of entry became where it was like, right. At first it was, you know, thousands of acres uh, like the Eddie DeBartolo senior, where it's like basically wherever two freeways meet and then, (laughs) which I thought was so interesting. And I have Eddie DeBartolo is a very interesting figure uh, for me personally as well. So uh, but so there, it starts there and then eventually over time, like you say, it's everything is so cyclical. It just was like, and then we'll move back to downtown and then we'll move to, you know, it, it just, it was a kind of a fascinating, I, I would never have thought how, how again, closely tied or, or even what a forebearer, something like this kind of retail was for, you know, eventually living spaces and, and things yeah. like in the way, the, the kind of the way that the things are moving. So I, I guess one of the things in, in the architecture of all this is so interesting, um, I, you know, you learn a lot of names when you when you look into like architecture design, <laughs> because I think that's sort of the, the the trade off of being an architect is your building stands, but you know, you maybe people don't know who you are, and so uh, one of the names. So so there's John uh, John Jardy, Jardy, uh, yeah, Jardy, wh- which who's a, who's another sort of interesting figure who kind of comes along and, and possibly innovates what the mall can be. But he gained a lot of insight and inspiration from a name that I definitely recognized, which was Ray Bradbury, which I thought was so fascinating. Obviously, the author of Fahrenheit uh, 451 and the Martian Chronicles. And I was just like, so it was so interesting to see those two people sort of linked. Uh, and I guess I'd just give you a chance to speak on that. Yeah. So, um Ray Bradbury, you know, was an L.A. person, like a very <laughs> L.A. person. He moved uh, here as a teenager and he or there as a teenager. And he had a lot of nostalgia for the Los Angeles of the 1930s and 1940s when the city was really more a city of villages, I think, and the streetcars were more in effect. But by the early 70s, things had become more spread out. And he started to feel that even within the environs of Los Angeles, there was no there there. Um, And he wrote this great essay Uh, basically talking about like the plazas of Mexico and how Los Angeles really needed plazas like that, essentially with anchor businesses at each corner and people selling food and et cetera, et cetera. And John Jurdy, who was then a young architect um, for a time, worked for Charles Kober and Associates, which developed the uh, Glendale Galleria. Um, He read this piece and thought, he is talking about what I want to build. Like, you know, he just felt that like here was kind of an inspirational text for the way he thought malls ought to be and like what they could do for the city of LA. So a few years later, he was hired to do a mall scheme for downtown San Diego 
And he called up Ray Bradbury and said, like, would you write essentially like a tone poem for the redevelopment of downtown San Diego? And Ray Bradbury wrote something. It's a piece called The Aesthetics of Lostness. And it talked about actually the, the pleasure of getting lost, that that's something we do when we travel. And, you know, could we kind of have it in our own backyard? Um, and Jerdy used that as the foundation for his design for um, Horton Plaza in downtown San Diego, which has unfortunately now been like decorkified. But mm. when it opened in the early 80s was kind of this fantasy land version of like Siena or Italian hill towns and kind of blew everybody's mind. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, it sounds fascinating. And I've gone down to San Diego and I was like, well, I've never seen this. And I, and I guess that's why is it's no, you know, the times will catch back up to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it really, well, honestly, I think it should have been made a postmodern landmark and they shouldn't have been able to you know, make it all gray and glass and, you know, looking like everything else in 2022. But that is that is a fight that was not won. <laughs> uh, well, and so and Jerdy has such sort of an interest, and I guess using the inspiration from Bradbury, because right, Bradbury, if I took it correctly, basically it was like people just need a place to be, right? Like a, they need a place to hang out and to do stuff, right? Because otherwise you're just going around sort of aimlessly, and then once you're at a place, then you can just sort of do that. But again, you're you're lost in a way that's that's interesting because you're making new discoveries, and um, so basically it's essentially this idea that like a like a mall doesn't necessarily need to be tied to shopping on every like it doesn't always need to be shopping forward. You can have experiences and movie theaters and other things where people can go around and spend so much time there doing other things that eventually, but eventually they pop, pop into a store and buy new sneakers, uh, yeah, which I, yeah. I, yeah, which is sort and of he, the mall that I know it. Yeah. As I know it. Yeah. Yeah. And he also talks about the importance of there being different kinds of spaces slash different kinds of shops for different ages and stages of people. Like one of my favorite bits that he talks about is that all malls should have an attic and like what's up in the attic it's like an antiquarian bookstore and a magic store and he doesn't say an arcade but like I really think the aesthetics of you know 1980s arcades are totally part of that just you know like it needs a back hall as well as like a front hall so it's like the moms can hang out in the atrium under the palm trees but the kids want to go in the dark corridor where there are things that feel like they're just for them yes exactly and, and which is such a kind of brilliant point like something truly for everyone yeah uh, yeah which and then so then that's uh the other journey also then goes on to design uh universal city walk uh yes. <laughs> which is uh, a very la very i i don't even know it's it's i i was there recently and it's it just feels like sensory overload <laughs> um and I think that's by design, right? I mean, in terms of the way, you know, you can get lost and there's these ramps and things, you're always sort of off balance at a place like that, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. No, and that, you know, it's like if the if the theme for Horton Plaza was Italian hill time towns, the theme for Universal City Walk is Hollywood. You know, it's like movie marquees and Hong and King Kong and, and all of that, but like crammed together all in one place, um, which is supposed to make it more exciting. And then Dirty's final move is then to design the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, which literally has a whole roller coaster in the middle of the mall. Like I like the joke I've been making in other interviews is you know, the title of my book is Meet Me by the Fountain. Every mall has a fountain, but at Mall of America, the fountain is actually a giant roller coaster. <laughs> that's the centerpiece. So, I mean, I think there's something really quite wild about thinking that up and making it happen. And yeah, yeah. and Jerdy's real innovation was, um, he said something about to make shopping beside the point. He he thought the mall really had to move into being an entertainment zone because shopping itself was not a draw for people anymore. Absolutely. Well, I also just briefly going back to CityWalk, I think he's, did he say that he got uh, inspiration from Blade Runner? Yes, he did. <laughs> a terrifying thought, honestly. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> only so a true visionary. <laughs> 
Sometimes you don't want to know people's references. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> now I look at it and I feel, you know what? Honestly, he's kind of he kind of nailed it in that regard. Um, well, and and Mall of America is so interesting because that's I feel like in kind of Universal City Walk is a similar, but it's attached to a theme park and in but it's literally the mall as a tourist destination, which is so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I it is. I mean, they literally had you know daily flights essentially you know, to the Minneapolis airport, but to the Mall of America because people would fly in, stay at a hotel, like on the mall property, spend the weekend entirely inside the mall and then fly out, like never go to Minneapolis proper at all. Um, and, you know, I do think that at that time in the U.S., you know, many fewer people traveled internationally. People, you know, didn't fly as much for vacations. So the Mall of America actually seemed like a bargain because you could get so much in one place. Um, and the there was the the roller coaster in the center, but then each of the wings of the mall had a different theme and one was more European, like one was more New Orleans, one was more honky tonk. And so I think now if people want to go to New Orleans, they go to New Orleans. I mean, and uh, you know, New Orleans has too much, too many tourists because of that. Or if they want to go to Paris, they go to Paris, you know, same. Uh, but at that time, that just wouldn't have been affordable for most people. And so the Mall of America, yeah, just like consolidated all into one place that was easier to get to. Um, but yeah. I think we're in a very different tourism place now. D definitely. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting because uh, I mean, obviously, and in Jerdy is uh, someone who was like very pro uh, Disneyland, right, which kind of like yeah <laughs> is that is that by and i'm and i'm from las vegas nevada which is okay. sort of like adult disneyland and, and where you can see the paris uh the venetian uh gondolas and and you know everything just walking down the street you know yeah uh so that i kind of have a there's a soft spot i have a soft spot for that idea of like cramming everything into one place and being like i'm gonna do it all in one day yeah yeah, yeah. which is really uh, not the best idea <laughs> no no it's a, again overload a little bit um so then, so, so you kind of describe those as sort of like there, there was the first wave of malls, there's a second wave of malls. Are we kind of in like the, are we technically in the third wave of malls now? Is this? Mm, I feel like we're in probably the fourth wave because after the, let's say the dirty entertainment malls, there were what you referred to as the, the lifestyle centers, which are oh, yes. basically a high end indoor mall that's gone back outdoors. Right. Um, these were always more popular in warmer climates. Like I think California always had more outdoor malls than other places. But um, during the 90s and early 2000s, there was a desire to try to make the mall fresh again by making places. Well, the one in Durham, North Carolina is called the shops at South Point um, mm. to make these outdoor malls that would still have, you know, an anchor store at either end and shops in between, but maybe the path was more wandering and there were outdoor cafes um, and other sorts of things to kind of make it feel more like a real urban street. Yes, uh, with the Grove in Los Angeles. Yes, the, the Grove Americana, is a great example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These sorts of, again, the Rick Caruso properties were a guy who wanted to create his own little town uh, complete with a trolley uh can't who now is used that as a launching point to to possibly become the mayor of los angeles um right. yeah. yeah yeah which which again and yeah the aesthetic of those are very interesting i'm sorry i would catch you up what we're gonna say oh no that's okay yeah i mean it's like you can, it's much easier to be mayor of the grove than it is to be mayor of los angeles <laughs> yes um, yes but yeah i i think again you can see people trying to kind of dress the same thing in new clothes like I mean that's how I really see the lifestyle centers they didn't really move that far from the mall origins it, they were just deployed in a different way and generally with architecture that referred uh, more specifically to the area that they were in you know like they're ones uh, in the southwest they're all adobe there are ones in connecticut that have like white clabberding you know the most basic kind of scenography um, but yeah, no, now, 
you know, we're in kind of a wild zone of mall making that was only kind of made wilder by the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And so like there, I think a lot of different mall things happening at the same time. So, yeah, it kind of leads me to where we kind of where you were writing the book and essentially as, as you're writing the book, a pandemic breaks out, which is <laughs> Uh, kind of the worst possible thing for a, a mall, a place where people can gather uh, to shop in person and do these things, especially at a time where obviously online shopping is beginning to already pick off uh, mall business and, and, and seems to only have exacerbated that to a certain extent. And uh, so, so I guess in that way, what, what was that experience like for you and being like, I love these things, I'm writing about these things and, and now I might actively be watching, you know, yeah. their downfall, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely freaked out for the first few months, um, partially because I thought, you know, initially my argument was going to be, you know, yes, some malls are dying, but not all malls are dying. And I was like, wait, is that like, is that narrative completely exploded now? The other thing was just like, as a writer and researcher, I had, you know, six months of mall tours all planned out like I had all these maps of places I was gonna, gonna go I was hoping to have a lot more kind of walk and talk experiences of going mm. to people with malls and basically I went to North Park in February 2020 and came back um and then that was it like everything else was canceled so you know I, I had I had a hard heart with my editor about how we thought I could still write the book. And I, I don't think in the end it suffered from that because honestly, a lot of the malls that I was talking about, especially historically, I really wanted to talk about how they were then, not how they were now. Cause I wanted to talk about <laughs> their designers intentions and like how they were covered and, you know, kind of what their innovation was. So I found other ways, partially thanks to like a lot of YouTube videos of mall tours and historic news coverage. I mean, like there's a lot of mall material out there on the web and I tried to dip into all of it. Um, but what happened was once the pandemic started going on, you know, once we realized the pandemic was not going to be over in three months or whatever, I, I started talking to you know, mall analysts and experts, and they all said, and this has mostly been borne out, that the pandemic wasn't going to change the trajectories of malls. It just might accelerate their directions. Like it was mm. going to become clearer, faster, which malls were going to survive and which malls were going to die. And, and they did up the percentage of malls that were going to die. But like, part of my basic argument is that, you know, even if like even if we started with approximately 1200 malls, indoor malls before the pandemic, even if 35% of those end up not making it, that's still seven to 800 live malls. And that's still an awful lot of malls. Like people have gotten the impression because of very dramatic dead mall photography <laughs> that like all the malls are gonna go away. And that's just not true. Like lots of them are alive and well. They tend to be the fancier malls. And I don't know what your experience is of um, the malls in Los Angeles, but like malls with a Nordstrom or a Saks or a Neiman Marcus um, are doing better than the rest of malls. Uh, it's it's kind of the middle to lower end malls that were really um, decimated by the demise of a lot of different department store brands. Like, right. I mean, uh, kind yeah. of, again, shadowing a sort of declining middle class in America in some yeah, ways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, obviously. I read a great article that said, like, people who have money, you know, shop at Neiman Marcus. People who don't have money used to shop at Macy's, but now they shop at Target. And Target right. is usually a freestanding big box store, not in a mall. So you don't need to go to the mall to go to a Target. And that I feel like is very clear and I think easy to understand. I mean, just looking at one's own behavior. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. it's interesting, just like vis-a-vis -vis online shopping, which you mentioned. Like before the pandemic, online shopping was about fifteen percent of retail sales. It went up to like thirty to thirty-five percent of retail sales during the pandemic. But it's already coming back down. Like people did not love doing all of their shopping online, and you know, I know just from like my own anecdotal experience, like it became really frustrating. Like all the packaging in your house 
having to order multiple sizes if like you don't, especially women's sizing is very crazy. Um, so uh, I think that people do have a desire to go back to shopping in person, maybe not for everything, but definitely for some things. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, uh, again, it's it's something to do, and, and, and yes. which is kind of, it's it's sort of the ultimate a platonic ideal of like, I'll go and I'll they'll probably eat some food and I'll buy a shirt and I'll see a movie and I'll do, you know, there's just, I think as human beings, we crave that sort of right. order. That sounds yeah. like a totally pleasant way to spend an afternoon. Yes. And, <laughs> yes. And the mall made it as easy as possible. Yeah. And I, and honestly, I was going to say a movie is like, I think people were freaking out about movies in the exact same way. It was malls. Like, well, will there ever be movie theaters? Will there, will, will people ever leave their houses again to go pay to watch a movie? Uh, which is obviously, I think, tied to malls in, in a lot of, a lot of the best malls I ever had uh, growing up had a movie theater in them. Uh, and the, the answer was yes, we've billions of dollars have been spent at the box office since it was deemed safe to return. And I think people now the types of movies, you know, again, it's different, but anyway, and again, people want to go out, people want to see the world and, and do yeah. things in the world and interact with strangers and have communal experiences in the mall is a great vector for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. I think, um, people want to be with people. And that's something that came up again and again in the mall literature that I was reading and also just felt correct to me as a human and an observer of people in public spaces. Like that doesn't change, um, you know, no matter what century you're living in, there are some universal experiences that we just keep building different architectures for. Yeah. Uh, so, I, so I guess now the question I would just sort of ask, because I guess you say we're in the fourth wave and things have gotten kind of interesting, like, what is the future of the mall? Or like, what is the future draw of the mall? And I, and I guess I'll refer quickly back to the Eddie DeBartolo Sr., uh, his son, Eddie DeBartolo Jr., eventually bought the San Francisco 49ers, uh, of whom I'm a huge fan. Okay. And <laughs> it's still in the DeBartolo family to this day. And, and it's something I've noticed with now sports franchises are trying to do this. Uh, I mean, you know, they built a new stadium in Santa Clara with the intention of essentially having a city center pop up around the stadium and essentially a mall, sort of like an L.A. Live with Staples Center, now Crypto.com. Uh, or Stan Kroenke, who built the SoFi Center in Inglewood, bought, you know, hundred you know, thousands of acres there with the sort of the same intention of having what is essentially a mall there? Is that, is that a thing, you know, something, having an anchor store that's literally a pro sports team, is that kind of where we're headed yeah. maybe? I, that is one of the directions that we're headed in. I think in most places, you know, in most towns, like the anchor store that's actually a sports stadium is instead some kind of um, experience place, like um, a, like a trampoline park or like a really fabulous climbing center. Uh, like we have Brooklyn Boulders here. I don't know if that's a franchise or not. Um, or I read about uh, uh, Sears in North Vancouver that's going to be turned into an indoor mic mountain biking arena. So I think the the sports stadiums ones are kind of like the deluxe example. But the point mm -hmm. is, how can people, what will make people leave their houses and what can they do like as a family? And so like in San Francisco or in LA, like that can be a sports stadium, but in, you know, a smaller place that can be a trampoline park where everyone has their birthdays or you go on a rainy day and you can spend hours and just like have a good time. So I think it's experiences. Um, and then the other kind of replacement anchor, um, as you might call it, is really food experiences. Like and that goes back to the festival marketplaces as well. So markets where you can buy special foods, but also eat in um, and do your grocery shopping, maybe have like different kinds of restaurants. North Park um, installed in Italy went during the pandemic that I think is doing pretty well. And so Italy again is at the high end, but there are lower end versions of this. Um, and in some places, there are older malls that have been kind of taken over and redone to specifically attract um, the, I guess, the local community, which is often an immigrant community. So, you know, 
malls no longer just for white people. Um, and so there are Latinx malls and African malls and Asian American malls of all different types, where again, food is a really important part of the whole mix of stores, but other things are also sold. I mean, just even stepping back for a second too, because you sort of talk about, you quote, I didn't expect a Chris Rock quote in uh, the book, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that was, it was so interesting of like, the idea that there became the quote unquote uh, black malls, which were essentially old white malls that white people didn't go to anymore. And, but they still made almost as much money or if even more money. And it's like people not realizing it. it's like, well, money, you know, I guess capitalism will eventually bear that out. And it's like money is money. And so it's interesting to see that that's sort of the future of, I guess, in many ways of like, right, there are these specialized places and it's like, people will still happily take, you know, dollars, those, those right. dollars. Yeah. I mean, the difference is, I mean, like the Chris Watt quote, as with much of his comedy is really like, a, it's a bitter quote, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. nobody's making a mall for us. We have to take the old mall, which yeah. you know, is not right. I mean, the, the positive thing about a lot of these new, let's call them ethnocentric marketplaces is that um, often the developers are from the community or um, it's somebody that is specifically making over malls in a lot of places that say now have a higher um, Latinx population to address that community's needs. So it's less exploitative and it's really kind of like positively turning to the newly diverse suburbs and giving people that are living in those suburbs what they need. And what they need is no longer like the old version of the mall. Yeah, that's actually really, yeah, that is, I, that is, that is a nice up shot actually for a change um so i mean we're kind of wrapping up here i guess I'll, I'll ask you one last question uh which is so if you could sort of describe your perfect day at the mall <laughs> what, what would it be uh let's see well um if you're doing kind of like a lightning round on mall food i would definitely be eating at auntie Anne's rather than mm -hmm. cinnabon Yes. Um, I would like to go to the movies, like maybe a romantic comedy. Um, I would I would actually like to browse um, in a Nordstrom because living in New York City, I never get to see all the like fancy dresses and designer shoes. So I would like to browse in a Nordstrom, but then I would probably be more likely to actually buy clothes at, you know, Zara. Or if I was very lucky and the mall had a Muji store, I would be into that. Muji's are great. That's a great yes. store. Yeah. yeah, they do have uh, one. I, I also do not like Hudson Yards, but they do have a Muji store. Oh, okay. All right. The Hudson Yards hot take to close yeah. this out. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and, and doing the research and writing this fascinating book. Uh, that I will not stop talking about for the next six months, at least. And uh, so just to, to quickly, I'll wrap things up. Uh, thanks again for joining us here on Skylight uh, Books Podcast. Uh, you can grab Alexandra's book, Meet Me by the Fountain, in our main location uh, at 1818 Vermont Avenue. It's going to be in the nonfiction section. Run out and, and get it right away. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.